shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Hello, welcome back aboard, faithful viewers and listeners, uh, to this final episode in Series 2 of the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast, uh, or this very special episode in crossover terms of the uh, Silver Screen podcast. Um, we are going to be today reviewing and uh, discussing the movie Star Trek First Contact. I say we because I can't do this on my own. Um, I am joined by two very special guests, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, uh, starting with Erin to my right. <laughs> Hi, I'm Aaron. Um, I ho host a podcast with my wife. Um, she's unable to be here, but uh, we're the Spinal Frontier Pod, and we're excited to talk about Star Trek First Contact. Awesome, awesome. And uh, yeah, and who, who else is joining me today? Then? <laughs> Hi, uh, this is Jeff Aiken. I host the Starfleet Leadership Academy. It's a leadership development podcast told through the lens of Star Trek. So I think... I think it sounds like you have gathered yourself a couple of Star Trek fans here. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, it was only fair. It was only reasonable to have Star Trek fans discussing a Trek movie. So before we get into that, the Trek podcast does have a, a couple of sections. There won't be a hit or miss section, as you might usually expect, or a couple of the other things, um, because there simply won't be time since we're reviewing a movie. Um, but I did want to start off with my usual section, uh, which is basically where I get to know my guests, as I haven't really spoken to these two before. Uh, so that would be the section that I call Healing Frequencies Open. Healing Frequencies Open, sir. Excuse me. Um, right, so basically, uh, not to put you on the spot, but this is basically where, where I ask three questions to you um, that you probably won't be prepared for in advance. Uh, hopefully you're not too shocked by them, and uh, we can get some nice answers and find out a little bit about your history with Star Trek. Um, and the very first question in that uh, regard is... Uh, what was it that introduced you to the world of Trek? What was it that made you kind of think, oh, I want to carry on watching this? And can you remember what the very first episode or movie was that you saw? Uh, and I'll start with you again, Erin, just because you're closer on the screen here. <laughs> so my uh, my parents were big into Star Trek, and I remember watching The Next Generation with my mom. Um, I don't remember the first episode I watched, but I do remember the spaceships. And that is what kept me tuning in every week. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I'm a bit of a spaceship nerd myself, as you'll probably know. If you follow the channel, I've done uh, enough Eagle Moss reviews and talk about all the ships and things. So it was the uh, the special effects and the starships that caught your imagination. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, all right. Fair enough. Well, we are going to have an inroad somewhere, I suppose. And as I say, uh, I think that was part of the appeal for me. But um my very first things I remember watching were original series. It was it was the early '90s, and people in lizard costumes and things were a lot more impressive back then. So, <laughs> so true. It's it might sound too dissimilar from Aaron. I I grew up. My mom loved Star Trek, and oh, okay, uh, so a little older. So like you, um, watched the original series, and I remember when the Next Generation was gonna come out. Like yeah. I was in grade school and eagerly anticipating. It coming out, and I remember you know talking about the spaceships and the effects. I remember, like, I mean, I was a kid, and I knew the original series stuff was just so corny, so campy. <laughs> yeah. And watching the Next Generation, I remember thinking, I'm just like, it's not possible to top this. This looks mm. so good. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it is right. I mean, some some of it kind of sort of holds up, you know, pretty yeah. pretty well. 
I think we all suffer a little bit from those rose-tinted glasses if we've seen these things when we were younger, because I remember thinking the Tholian web was the greatest special effects sequence in sci-fi at the time when I first saw it when I was young, and then I watched it back just a few weeks ago and was like, wow, there's really not that much of that's impressive when you look at this. But at the time, you, I was like, wow. Yeah, you watched it again doctored up, right? Like, they they, fit, they yeah, remastered. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so it's like it was even even less back when you watched it the first time. Absolutely. Like this I is actually, after I've seen like Enterprise do it and stuff. Yeah. Sorry, Aaron. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, not at all. Um, I I wish that it was easier to find the um, original versions of the original series because yeah. the remastered's great, but I kind of want to see mm. what it was like. <laughs> there are some I think that, that were better the because they were more kind of imaginative almost. I think the way they were done originally, yeah. and that's the way I remember watching them. Um, so there are a few occasions where I've watched the updated ones on the Blu-ray just because I'm making my way through it and I'm like, oh, if I watch this again, I'm going to go back to the original because it just has a bit more charm and I remember it. You know, I mean, there's instances where it doesn't, where you just would never have seen a ship like in um, Charlie X or I Mud before there would be no ships there. And now you get a chance to see a shiny new CGI ship, which is kind of cool. But yeah, uh, you know, there's there's things where they've quote unquote improved the special effects where I just don't think it has the charm or the appeal <laughs> things like um the giant green hand grabbing the enterprise right that, that was no need to update that it was designed to look ridiculous of course it was yeah, so, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> enough talk of uh, special effects anyway so um the second question then was going to be um if you had to pick three episodes or movies from anywhere in the trek franchise uh, to represent the very best of trek uh, or to introduce somebody who's never seen anything to try and basically lure them into the world of Trekkie fandom. Uh, what would be your three choices then? And uh, again, start with you, Aaron. Okay, so um, first, the first thing that comes to mind is Darmok from The Next Generation. That's a good choice, and it hasn't come up nearly yeah. enough. It's a very good choice. I just think it's great because everybody gets a little bit of something to do. If, if I was showing somebody Star Trek for the first time, I'd show them that because it mm. really encompasses what it's all about um my second choice would be um the season finale of lower deck season two i don't remember its name first first contact oh yeah for first first contact that's great um i remember being blown away and i just i at the end of it i was like oh yeah this is this is star trek (laughs) yeah I was like that with Lower Decks in general. I think the last two episodes of Series 1 had me on board for that. I was like, okay, this is this is genuinely, you know, it's funny and everything, and then we get to the end of the seasons and we're like, no, no, we are still Star Trek, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, very good stuff. I, I love that episode as well. But again, being a ship nerd, I just liked the starship that appeared in it. I think that's my overriding memory of that episode. <laughs> the, like, uh, what is it, Obena class? The highly upgraded Excelsior class or whatever it is that it's yeah. supposed to be? Oh, Plus yeah. there's something cool about them just ripping the entire hole off the Cerritos to try and, uh, that and win the day. <laughs> Finally seeing Cetacean Ops. Oh, that was so good. Yeah. <laughs> Lieutenant Kimalu and Lieutenant Matt, two wheels who outrank Harry Kim. You can't get better than that, can you? <laughs> and, uh, what about yourself then, Jeff? What? Oh, oh, sorry, we've only got two out of you so far, haven't we? I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So what would be your third choice, sorry? Uh, this one's tricky. Um, off the top of my head, I want to say Year of Hell from Voyager. Ooh, wow. Okay. Okay, you don't think it would be frustrating for a, a new fan to know that it basically didn't happen at the end of it? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that would set up their expectations well for Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> 
reset button. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do love those episodes, and it is really like it, it, the dramatic stakes and everything are really awesome until the very end when it's just like, and it didn't happen. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to like there, though, definitely. And I think, as you say, if uh, if they went along on the journey, they would probably feel the emotions of it and uh, and might like it. So yeah, uh, it's a nice a nice little mix. We've got what um, a next gen, a lower decks, and a Voyager. So. Awesome. Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, Jeff, what would be your three choices then? Well, first, I'm so impressed, Aaron, that you were just, I mean, just boom, here's three. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, you asked the question. I'm just like, oh my goodness, just three? I mean, just let, let me think about that. Three out it's of not like there's over 800 episodes. Yeah. Jeff, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, come on, it's just be so easy. But I think, uh, it, it, wow. So the first one that came to mind for me, is I think my favorite episode of all of Star Trek. And I think it encapsulates a lot of what Trek is about, but I think it's also um, fun in a way that people didn't expect it to be yet. And that's from the original series, uh, Balance of Terror. Oh, awesome. Oh, I yes. love that episode. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I actually have had so many conversations with people as, as we as a society have progressed through diversity, equity, and inclusion and our understanding of it. And how, you know, that that powerful line that Kirk has in there about having no room for bigotry on this bridge mm. and how now in the, you know, the first quarter of the 21st century, like that's just not good enough, you know, anymore. Yeah. We don't have room for bigotry, <laughs> period. But in like yeah. 68, holy crud, like that was like, that was, that's shots fired, you know, to, to come out yeah. with a, with something like that. So I. Love that episode. I love that. I love that it, it's, it's again, for the 60s, it's really brave that it kind of humanizes the enemy because we know yeah. all of the kind of metaphors, the allegories the Romulans were representing, and yet the episode is like, now this is just another captain on just another ship with his mission in mind, and he's also, you know, kind of browbeaten, and, and you know, he's just happening to be on the losing side of this one. But yeah, there's he's got a really family. Tragic. He's got exactly, a family yeah. at home he cares about. And, and I think that's one of the things the original series did really well was, uh, and, and I, and it's weird. I, I think that Aaron and I've had this conversation before where you can't really say humanize in Star mm-hmm. Trek. Right. But I think for terms of, for us, you could say humanizes the enemy um, yeah. in a way, you know, and then I think that's one of the things it did just, just brilliantly. Yeah. It certainly makes the enemy more three dimensional than just yeah. you know, the, the, the demon under the stairs or whatever else, you know, again, it's the sixties. We weren't that far from the McCarthy witch hunts and stuff. So exactly. It was quite a unique idea. You know? <laughs> but, uh, and I think yeah. if you're introducing someone to Star Trek, you can't not watch the next generation. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I think like everything that has happened in Star Trek since then, it's the basis of, and Oh my gosh, there's so many incredible episodes in there. I landed on the drumhead. Oh, okay. Wow. Intense. And I think, and that's kind of why, right? Because I think it it captures some of what we get in, I mean, one of the greatest episodes of Star Trek ever, Measure of a Man, right? Mm -hmm. Like Drumhead captures some of that, Um, just that. You know, for, we, we we've come to call it lawyer lawyer Picard, right? But also, just <laughs> I think more than that, it captures that that inquenchable thirst for justice that Star Trek demands and really demands so well through its captains in a lot of cases. I mean, that speech that Picard gives in there, where he's just like just laying it out on. I mean, that that's Star Trek to me, right there. Excellent choice. Again, uh, one that hasn't come up at all, I don't think, in anybody's list because they tend to go for the likes of Measure of a Man um, because of the bigger, flashier speeches. Or um, a lot of people pick the inner light just because of the dramatic kind of emotional impact to go for the next-gen episode. Um, But the drumhead, I think, is an excellent choice because 
It also emphasizes the kind of um, no easy answers, I think, that Star Trek can, can be yeah. brave enough to do sometimes and not many other shows would, which is kind of like you don't know who the good guys and who the bad guys are. And it's not necessarily as black and white as all that, you know? Exactly. Um, so, yeah. So I can't wait to hear your third choice. <laughs> well, I want I want I want more fun, right? And so okay. for for me, I I I, re, I I looked at this one not too long ago on my podcast, and it really hit me watching it. You know, when you watch an episode for a podcast or for an interview or for something like that, you know, you look at it a little bit more critically, I guess, um, in, in, in a good way, right? You know, just you're wanting to get all the stuff out of it. And this episode just hit me on how it's just a celebration of all things Star Trek. And that's from Deep Space Nine, Trials and Tribulations. <laughs> yes, that one has come up before. <laughs> I'll bet. It's just, it's a blast, right? It's like, <laughs> look, it's 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 next to zero stakes. You know, it's, it's a flashback thing. Everybody's kind of making fun of themselves. But in a way, I think it's so respectful to all of the Trek that came before it um, yeah. and, and introduces it in a way that's that's super fun. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it would be weird to watch that before watching the trouble with dribbles. <laughs> the way they yeah. the way they filmed it and comped in the actors over the old footage was to this day I still can't spot yeah. really how it was done. And oh, it's that's just really impressive. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, amazing. Really, I, I had read that it was. Um, the technology for uh, Forrest Gump, you know, the film there really kind of opened the door for that. But I, I think a lot of it too, I think if I remember right, when I read, was doing my research for the episode, like Terry Farrell is, you know, Jadzia just really struggled, you know, with like, I have to do this thing and mirror this person, but I'm not there. And, and just all the weirdness of trying to film it, but it was, I mean, it was done flawlessly. Definitely. Um, if you have a chance, by the way, if you haven't already seen, the special features and things on the Blu-rays, not to start plugging merch and everything, but um, I did recently watch all of that because Trouble with Tribbles came up in my original series watch. Um, and then on the disc, it has like Trials and Tribulations and all the behind the scenes making of that and everything. Oh. Um, and it is incredible watching the sort of the shots before and after. And you can see the shot from Mirror Mirror, which they took the Cisco moment from and how mm -hmm. they kind of um, composited him in, in place of Marleda. Uh, and as you said, the one shot on the bridge where Kirk kind of looks over to some nondescript crewman, um, and then now it's it's Jadzia Dax, and yeah. as you say, Terry Farrell's like, so where's my my eye line? Because we can't <laughs> tell Shatner to change his eye line, can we? So, you know, it's, <laughs> so yeah, it's a fascinating look into how they did that, and then how they did like set extensions to certain things where mm -hmm. there's like a scene from the Trouble with Tribbles for half of the image, and then the other half is a reconstructed corridor set where Cisco and Dax are standing and yet they oh, yeah. meld together so flawlessly it's brilliant that's uh, just a fantastic achievement in special effects that it doesn't get enough of a credit uh, I think for yeah. that reason because yeah man blending decades apart TV episodes as if they were in the same space and and without any joint visible I don't think so yeah, yeah I mean <laughs> the way they did the lighting and everything it's just yeah it's a it's a masterpiece absolutely awesome and as you said just funny as well <laughs> just, yeah. just a romp so Awesome. Uh, right, my third and final question in this section, then, and this is the big one, so apologies. Uh, it was going to be simply, uh, out of all of the series that we now have, what is your favorite or the best out of all of the Star Trek series? Uh, who wants to go first with that one, and who needs more thinking type? <laughs> I'll go first. Um, okay. Yeah, so I'm going to go with The Next Generation, not just because oh, it's goodness. my... Not just because it's my first Star Trek but I think it does a good job bridging the gap between um, 
Roddenberry era Trek and more modern Trek. So like if I was going to binge watch with somebody today that was new to it, I think I'd pick the next generation. Yeah, I, I would have said the same, not to not to bias anything, but yeah, that's uh, that definitely would have been my choice. But uh, so d- feel free to pick something else, though, Jeff. By the way, <laughs> so, well, I, for for me, it's it's it, it's Deep Space Nine. Like, there's never that's been a question. Say, yeah. For me. yeah, and I think <laughs> for me, it's just because I I and Aaron, I can't disagree, and I've never thought of Next Generation in that context before. I think you're so correct, and I think that what Deep Space Nine did was it grabbed the the relay baton, right, and it took it a solid two or three seasons to pick that baton up <laughs> right a little yeah I, a rough start but once it grabbed that baton it kind of took that post roddenberry track and it interrogated what star trek was about in a way that no other series has um mm. and i think it did it really well but i will say um it's too soon to tell right but there's a really strong chance that lower decks could take that title mm. for me that mm. series and it snuck up on me the way it did yeah. it, but it is so it's like I said, like with trials and tribulations, it's so respectful to this trek that came before it, but it also just grabs it, grabs it and moves in such a, a great way. It was the end of the first season when Shaq's spoiler alert here, when Shaq's died, and I yeah. I felt that and I was like, How did that happen? Oh, it's because kind of this show is done though, yeah. I, yeah right well you know, that's that's what we do in star trek sometimes <laughs> yeah, other things, but but no well, we i also think had a season break to sit in that for a while yes yes yeah no, i yeah, think true. lower decks is just brilliant brilliant and i think if it can maintain the trajectory it's got it might might take over that that spot for me yeah i think for me personally i think um almost all of the new series have a chance not to necessarily become the best but to become very well regarded in my heart because I've always kind of liked Discovery, but it always feels like it's fighting against itself. Yes. It doesn't want to. It doesn't want to get out of its own way in terms of like we have to stick to one story per season and cannot deviate and cannot do fillers. And then it does the odd filler episode, and they're the best episodes of every chosen yep. season that they do, <laughs> you know, so, which is frustrating. But yeah, Lower Decks Prodigy, I think, oh, the last few episodes that has a real chance to become my favorite track show if it keeps up that kind of. Uh, reverence and emotion as well and uh, the card i absolutely did not like season one but then season two if it sticks the landing and then with the big announcement that season three is basically a next gen reunion yeah there's a chance exciting (laughs) i know you know i i i I just again you know not not to make this oh i did this on my podcast but i just watched all of season one of picard for my podcast Mm -hmm. which was a Mm -hmm. huge mistake um, <laughs> hey, eat this whole eat this large pizza all in one sitting. Um, mm. I did, but I I wasn't. I mean, I didn't. I didn't not like it, right? But I, when I finished watching the first season the first time, I said to my to my partner afterwards, I was like, "This is my least favorite Star Trek right now." Like, I still yeah. enjoyed it, but it's my least mm-hmm. favorite. Upon a rewatch, I I feel that way even more strongly. And I actually yeah. to really dive into fandoms, I was like, th- "This really just hit me like." What if Star Trek decided to do Mass Effect, the video game? Yeah, that's yeah. Picard yep. season one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is how that felt. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but not even just that. I mean, we just recently reviewed Stardust City Rag, and I was like, this is like if you told somebody who'd only seen Star Wars to write a Star Trek episode. 
Yes. It really is. It's like, we'll chuck a cantina in there. We'll have some roguish, handsome Han Solo type. You know, we'll we'll have vindictive, you know, oh, we, we, you can have hope, but I need to kill the people that wronged me. And I was like, this, is, this was written by a Star Wars fan. It must have been, surely. Um, but yeah, it's a shame that uh, it, it didn't find its feet in that first season until, well, not even until the only episode I really rate, but it is a great episode. It's Nepenthe, um, just because of the whole reunion of Riker and Troy with Picard. So yeah, I do love that episode, but that's the only one. Um, that was yeah. that was a really good episode that had a lot to say about authenticity yeah, uh, right. just through Troy's conversation with uh, mm. Soji and the relationship with Soji and Kestra there it was just it was a really I think if I was just going to watch one episode of one of the newer Star Treks I think I'd pick Nepenthe mm. I can see that for sure, because it does do a lot with that. It's, it, it uses the character. It's not just a matter of like, I mean, it is the emotional impact of reunion with the characters, but like you say, it uses them to such great effect when um, when Troy is basically the one who has to talk Picard around, like, no, go easy on this uh, this little girl. Effectively, she just everything she ever believed was a lie, and her whole world's been shattered, and you're just kind of like, well, get over it, come on. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to have the empath, I guess, there to tell them, like, no, no, come on. <laughs> Calm down. Emotions are a real thing. So. Yeah, fair enough. Um, oh, well, that's enough of a chat, I think, on, uh, on Trek then. So we've got another TNG, another DS9 fan. So uh, it's all uh, all good. Um, I think almost everything's... Well, certainly all the older ones have been represented somewhere. So, uh, excuse me. As I say, we will move to the next section then, which will not be the hit or miss section because we don't have time. But um, hopefully we may have you on in a future uh, attempt to do that in another uh, series. But... As I mentioned, uh, we will go straight into the review. I will begin my analysis of that. And uh, this episode, uh, as a season finale, just like with season one, we're reviewing a movie. Um, and the movie is First Contact, as I mentioned. Um, the eighth Star Trek movie, second next-gen movie. And I just wanted to uh, to start with a few fast facts um, that I have written down. And if you guys want to comment on that, by all means, feel free. <laughs> or uh, chime in with any sort of information or anything that you know of your own. Um, okay. We'll take it from there to start with. Um so the first fact uh, for the audience I have here is that um, Rick Berman basically wanted this movie to be a time travel story, uh, but the writers, Ronald Moore and Brandon Braga, wanted a Borg story. Uh, so they basically had the idea to do both. Uh, after deb debating which time periods and then deciding what could be hokey or too expensive, uh, they settled on the birth of the Federation, uh, with Brandon Braga saying that the final image of the Vulcans was what brought him to the table in those pictures and um, really crystallized in his head. It was originally called Star Trek Resurrection, uh, and was very similar to the finished movie, except that Picard was going to take Cochrane's place in history. Um, he had a romance with a contemporary woman called Ruby, who would later be Lily, uh, and it was Riker who stayed on the ship to fight the Borg, um, who at this point were still just faceless automatons. Uh, the Borg Queen was added to give more life to what the studio considered to be the boring zombie-like drones. Uh, so it was there, basically, uh, proviso. And it was a dissatisfied Patrick Stewart who suggested switching Picard and Riker's storylines, which makes perfect sense. Um... When writing Zephram Cochrane, it became clear that the writers were basically writing an analogue for Gene Roddenberry, a flawed man from whom sprang a grand vision, um, which I hadn't realised until quite recently. And I was like, oh, wow, it really, it slaps yeah. you over the head with that when you know it, doesn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. You just said uh, that, and I'm yeah. like, wow, that, yes, wow. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, the first yeah. I'm hearing that, but yeah. <laughs> I can if see if you go back and watch it with that in mind, and especially when you see the scenes when it's like, oh, I didn't build this ship to go to the stars. My vision was dollar signs and islands of naked women. And, you know, oh, don't try to be a great man, just be a man. And I was like, 
<laughs> how did we not notice this before? Right. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't think you're a saint, but you did have a vision. So there we go. And uh, yeah, the uh, the title Star Trek Resurrection was ultimately changed uh, after the release of the fourth Alien movie stole that subtitle, <laughs> which um... became uh, First Contact. So that's the reason why we got that title. That and I don't think there's any resurrections in the film, so I don't get why it was called that anyway. Um, so yeah. Uh, as became tradition, the judicious use of existing pieces was employed to make the film sets, including turbo lift wall sections dating back to the motion picture and the sick base set borrowed from Voyager. Quite fitting, given that there's an EMH cameo. Uh, similarly, a Voyager cargo bay is the Enterprise's weapons locker, which I, again, had never noticed because you don't really see that much in, in that scene. It's very dark. So, um, Just a couple of random facts. Uh, this is the first Star Trek film in which the transporter room doesn't appear at all. Uh, and in the opening battle, you can see the Millennium Falcon really clearly yeah. um, as a sort of injo. <laughs> uh, it's underneath one of the attacking Akira-class ships, and if you go looking online, there's some incredibly clear images. It's supposed to be not discernible, but it is very, very much so uh, if you actually have like modern freeze-frame technology and stuff, so it's there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, didn't, uh, finally, didn't I, wasn't it industrial light? Like, there was a story there, right? And like, Yeah, yeah, it was an forget... injo kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's so cool. I love. I love that. That's there. Just proof, right? That it's it. It all. It's all right. Star Wars and Star Trek. Oh, it's just course. that one happens to be in a galaxy that's far, far away. <laughs> the last little bit of information then. Oh, on redesigning the Borg, it was decided that the assimilation process should look like it came from the inside out instead of vice versa. Uh, and the blinking lights on the various drones actually spell out the production crew members' names in Morse code. <laughs> oh, that is cool. <laughs> so weird, but cool, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I love the detail like that. Yeah, you'd be so thrilled if you were one of the production members, even knowing that nobody's going to know what's happening. But like, <laughs> hey, that book's say my name. And uh, just finally, I've mentioned this before um, as one of the sort of hilarious errors that we pick on, even though with affection. Um, but I have to just mention, because it's still so funny to me, that Picard states to Lily that there are 24 decks to the Enterprise E, yet a security officer states that the Borg control decks 26 up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> Later in Star Trek Nemesis, during the battle with the Remans, the ship somehow loses shielding on deck 29, allowing them to board. <laughs> so your guess is as good as ours when it comes to the Enterprise E's decks. Or it he says there's only, there's, there's only 24 important decks, right? That's for the <laughs> captain. He's like, those other ones are just whatever. <laughs> it's the, uh, then, that long hallway that all the ensigns sleep in. Yeah. <laughs> I love because um, being, you know, the nerds that we are, there's always an attempt to kind of explain these things. And um, the Okuda's text commentary on First Contact, when it gets to that scene, is like, we surmise in our heads that it's because the final two decks are classified and Picard didn't want to admit their existence to Lily. So it's like, those are top secret. So we can't admit this as if she would know. And I'm like, all right, fair <laughs> enough. Whatever, whatever pleases you. <laughs> awesome. Uh... So yeah, any uh, any other kind of facts and figures that you guys are aware of, or any thoughts on those that uh, that you wanted to, to share? This, this was the. Movie, oh, go ahead. Sorry. This movie scared me so much when I was I watched mm. it. I think I was ten years old, and my cousin took me to the drive-in theater, and that um, the change in the assimilation process from yep. the inside out when that yeah. implant burst out of Picard's cheek in the very beginning. Yeah. Oh, I was terrified, and I was locked in for an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, it's surprising how horror, I mean, I'll probably get into it, but it's surprising how much horror imagery there is to the Borg in this. And yeah. it really does, it kind of, um, I mentioned it in my review of, this is relevant, I promise, but my review of Unimatrix Zero, when I was like, the reason I hate that episode is because 
the Borg here, when you're assimilated, it's a terrifying, horrific, you know, body horror ordeal. And yet in Unimatrix Zero, they're like, yeah, we'll just cosplay as the Borg for a week. It's fine. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, it just jars when you've watched the two together, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I think because they, they were super intentional, right, for production and making the Borg look more yeah. scary and horrifying. This was the first movie to have a PG-13 rating, you know, which is a pretty... Right big deal but i you know I, it's hard to uh, i don't know i i still like it's been so many years since this film came out and i still don't know how i feel about the changes they made um yeah to them i mean i think it works for the movie you know for what they were doing in the movie but in the the scope of what the borg are like it's kind of an outlier in some ways and it i don't know i don't still know how i feel about it still i i see personally i like what they did but as i said i think it was a question of they didn't necessarily have to take that into the TV series and run with it. They could have left it as just a movie thing. Yeah. And I think that's where it kind of fell apart when Voyager was like, let's take all of this and then we'll adapt it into our story. And it's like, no, it doesn't for quite a, work as well. <laughs> for know. a story about integrating humanity and like the like the flesh to data, and have that yeah. be a step towards his humanity, kind of like the temptation there. Yes. It made sense that the Borg Queen was slinky and seductive because she <laughs> yeah. was seducing him. And yeah. it made sense that they borrowed some design elements, I feel, from H.R. Geiger, I mm-hmm. feel like is mm-hmm. an influence in that. It didn't make sense to keep it through Voyager because they just they weren't dealing with that theme anymore. I will uh, I will get into the movie, I promise. And uh, the way I'm doing it, I'm trying to um, to keep things kind of brief and to, well, not brief, but, you know, to, to keep things moving along. So I've just got it into, I've called it scenes, but it's not really. It's just chunks of action where I'm kind of going to m- mention what happened and give some thoughts on it. Um, and then I have some kind of talking points and some questions to throw to you, uh, to you and to ask you kind of your opinion on. Um, so if that's okay, I'm going to jump in and go ahead and do that. So good. Um, as I say, feel free to interrupt me at any point, though, if you wanted to sort of comment on something or if there's something that I missed or if I've gone past the scene you want to talk about. Um, it's just very free, you know, free flowing, open, open forum. So uh, feel free to jump in. Don't be shy. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, the movie basically opens with um, Captain Picard's nightmare uh, of, well, it's a memory, basically, of um, his assimilation by the Borg. Uh, in uh, Best of Both Worlds Next Gen, obviously. Um, obviously, things look a bit different now. There's a bit more advanced of a special effects, you know, which is the first thing you have to get over in terms of visual continuity because it's not quite the same, but, you know, again, it's a dream. We can forgive it. Um, I will say I didn't... I don't remember if I was young enough not to care, but watching it back now, I really hate the kind of fake-out, oh, I've woken up from the dream. Oh, I wasn't really awake kind of thing that happens at the start of this movie because it's so cheesy and such a cliche now. <laughs> you know? To me, that just like planted the flag, though, that like, hey, like what's totally a Star Trek movie, also kind of a horror movie, too. Like, yeah. it's such a horror movie trope to do something like that. That is true, I suppose. It does set that tone and it does make you nervous, I think, because that's the point, yeah. isn't it? So. Um, awesome. Uh, Admiral Hayes basically informs Picard the Borg have attacked and he knows because he can hear them. But the Enterprise has been assigned to patrol the neutral zone because Starfleet don't trust Picard. So he instead just storms off and decides to listen to Berlioz in a huff uh, <laughs> until Riker, um, Riker comes back to him and tells him, you know, we're not doing anything exciting here. These are the boring reports. And then they get the audio that comes onto the bridge speakers from the battle, which sounds horrendously bad, obviously. Yeah. As the Borg are attacking the fleet and uh, Picard, as is often the case with these movies, decides he's going to break orders 
and he's gonna the Enterprise is gonna head to where the battle is and join it. And uh, I love this part of the movie, this epic space battle. I'm a sucker for this. I can't really say enough good things. It's just I love a... all the ships. <laughs> like yeah, I was, that's that's one of my talking points. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I'm gonna bring that up, but um. I just love that it looks so good because we were related to what you were saying, Jeff. We watched Next Gen and we're like, it doesn't get better than this special effects wise. Then you watch this and you're like, oh, yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> it gets yeah, so much better. Everything's so hooped, so, you know, souped up and you're already excited. And then it's like that um, Vince McMahon meme where it's getting levels of excitement because it's like, oh, fantastic new ships look awesome. Oh, it's the Defiant. Oh, there's another ship coming in. It's the Enterprise. You know? So it just ramps you up further and further till you're like, oh, enough. <laughs> so but, uh, yeah. The ensign on the Defiant piloting it is Adam Scott. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and, from Parks and Recreation. Yeah, from Parks and Recreation. He's uh, kind of a kind of a local uh, celebrity where I live, um, and. It was just every time, we, like my wife and I are like, it's him, it's him. <laughs> I love that because I had no idea until I read that somewhere and I was like, oh yeah, it is. Because again, it's one of those things that's so fast and it's a dark kind of busy scene. Uh, He's so much like, younger wow. too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's got to be pretty badass. You, <laughs> you piloted the Defiant against the Borg. That's uh, that's something for the yeah. resume. <laughs> but uh, yeah, obviously uh, we, we get t- traditional Wolf kind of, oh, today's a good day to die. We're going to have to ram them because the Defiant's wrecked and then you know, the, the Defiant survivors are beamed aboard. Um, we're not supposed to question, I presume, how, considering shields are up, but, you know, never mind. <laughs> and uh, Wharf boards to Commander Riker, giving him a few sly digs about, you know, the Defiant being a tough little ship as a callback to Thomas Riker's appearance in DS9. Yep, yep I love <laughs> that. Is, and uh, I just love the, uh, you do remember how to fire phasers <laughs> to Worf, and then Wharf just staring at him like, I will kill you. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, so yeah, just lots of great moments in there and then again Picard using his knowledge to target an area that doesn't seem like it's a weakness but it basically destroys the Borg cube, however before it's destroyed it ejects the new Borg sphere, the newest uh, shuttlecraft from the Borg that appears for the first time here Um, yeah this next scene is weird because I'm not sure, again I, I love it but I'm not sure the logic tracks that it's like they get caught in the temporal wake of the sphere and see Earth as it is which is completely assimilated because the Borg have changed history but they aren't affected because they're in the temporal wake. So they decide they can continue on course and follow the Borg back. And it's very kind of like, mm, does the time travel logic there really work? <laughs> because, yeah, there's my like, head is kind like, of done in. But <laughs> right, there's like, I think, four four to 83 different time travel sets of logic that they can <laughs> choose to. And they just like, let's take, let's take number 18 and 43 and overlay those. And that's how we're going to make this make sense. Well, it's astounding to me how people don't just time travel all the time, given that it it's apparently so easy. <laughs> so simple. Well, they did yeah. in um, in the original series. I mean, that was the the episode I was mentioning the other week. Assignment Earth opens with mm-hmm. Kirk just making a log like Starfleet yeah. have assigned us to go back to the 1960s and do some research. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> It's like my favorite time travel that. thing because every other time they time travel, like there's, there's, we're going to go around the sun, we're going to do this, we're gonna, and then in assignment Earth and here they're like, hey, let's just hit the button that says time travel, just do that. <laughs> I've copied the Borg signature. Ah, let's just jump back into the same thing then, yeah. and we'll, we'll end up back where we came from. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Doctor Who logic, I think, isn't it really the faster yeah, turn switch? Well, timey wimey. <laughs> 
yeah. Either way, it's still it's it's it does give you the exciting moment because I remember the first time I watched this movie again in terms of uh, the way that it's kind of structured like a horror film at times. There is something really chilling about the uh, you know the population is nine billion. They're all Borg, and yeah. that's Earth. You know, <laughs> it's like, oof. I'm not sure in what timeline that actually happened, since the whole point was that the Enterprise stops it. But again, I'm not going to think too much about that. So, well, I loved, yeah, I loved how they did it too, because you know, I mean, going in, you the viewer knows you're going back to you know 21st century earth and so mm. the way they like laid those breadcrumbs out on you know oh i'm reading a lot of methane i'm reading a lot of this and so as star mm. trek fans we're conditioned that like oh they're going to make a comment on pollution in the late 20th early 21st century okay that's going to happen and you just kind of like settle into that and they're like all borg and you're like oh it's yeah. even worse than i thought yeah. it was gonna be no <laughs> yes exactly and uh, yeah i remember they used that for the teaser poster as well because they said something like this is earth the population is nine billion borg what are we going to do about it or something along those lines yeah. for the, the teaser and i was like wow that's how you get people's butts and seats i guess so <laughs> um yeah fair enough um so, yeah, uh, I basically paused here uh, when they're following the Borg back through their own time corridor or whatever you want to call it um, for the first opening talking points, which is just, uh, do, do we all agree that the direction of these opening scenes is just fantastic or what? <laughs> I mean, especially the battle. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's, to this day, it's still a like just a joy to watch. Absolutely. I wish I'd seen it on the big screen. I never got a chance. I was too young, unfortunately. So Insurrection was the first film I saw on the big screen. But I remember um funny story about my personal life that I was so obsessed with Trek and with this movie when it came out in general that from the local um, Indian corner shop next to me, they had like one of those things where it's like one or two racks of videos that you used to be able to rent out, which again is how old oh, I am because nice. these are video cassette tapes yeah. <laughs> for EHSs. Um, and I rented First Contact once a week for like 11 or 12 weeks in a row. And the, the Indian chap who's like a friend of the family who runs the shop in the end was like, just keep it. You've paid for it like four times over. Just keep the video. And to be fair, nobody else wants it. It's a Star Trek film, you know. It's amazing that he stocked it at all. So that was how I got my first VHS copy of First Contact. So, I love that. It, it's such a bizarre story, and uh, I loved that video, though. I was I cradled that like it was a child. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the scene. I think again, we have to mention that Jonathan Frakes is the director of yeah. the film because. Mm -hmm. Talk about stepping up. I mean, I know he'd done episodes and things, but like I said, the space battles here, the actual acting, even scenes he's in, just so impressive. Uh, I think some of the best space battles in Star Trek were from the you know last season of Deep Space Nine and the Dominion War. Mm. Those were great, right? But though I don't believe those scenes could have happened without no, this not. battle of Sector 001, right? I mean, it's just this set the bar for what a Star Trek battle could be. No, that was going to be my point, is that basically this is... A pivotal moment in terms of sort of track effects because this is where Alex Yeager and ILM just invent, I think, five new classes of starship that we've never seen yeah. before that would go on to become hugely famous, especially as I say in the DS9 war uh, scenes because they needed to pad out the you know, you couldn't just have Miranda classes and Galaxy classes everywhere, so right. they started appearing the, constantly on DS9. Really good use of the movie budget, yeah, yeah. definitely. And I mean, they're, they're great, um, they're great ships, and that was my next talking point was going to be. Do you have a favorite of the new Alex Jaeger ships and which is it? It's got to be the Akira class. Oh, I knew everyone was going to say that and that was mine as well. <laughs> it's hard to not. It's just, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous ship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's uh, I think I'm becoming so familiar with it now that I'm at that point where I'm like, oh, look how impressive like the steam runner class is. And then I'm like, but it's still <laughs> it's still not quite as good, though, is it? It's the Akira class all the way that, that takes the cake. That was just a brilliant piece of design. You can tell why they basically uh, when they were making Enterprise, they were like, use that. We like that design, <laughs> even though it yep. completely makes no sense chronologically, you know, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Different. I like to speak of the Akira class as a retro design. Yes. <laughs> so let's let's have a lot. It's a it's a homage to the NX yeah. era, of course. Absolutely. Utopia Planitia was feeling nostalgic when they designed it. <laughs> Absolutely. Like for this first contact day, we're gonna go ahead and do a throwback for a limited <laughs> time only. Got it. <laughs> Oh, one of the things it. I love in this opening opening scene. It, so overall in the movie, I, I I mean they were little nuggets, but they pulled in Deep Space Nine and they pulled in Voyager mm-hmm. in little ways. Yep. I loved how they brought the Defiant into this and how like even on Deep Space Nine, like they made mention, you know, Reason, of this yeah. at a super <laughs> high level. You know, I mean they could have done, but it's just kind of cool because I think they're. There was a I don't know, just it's neat that there was at least some tie pot tie back between what was happening on television and what was happening on the big screen. Yeah. That was another little fact that I read that I was um, kind of amazed in terms of like the, the, the lack of communication, I guess. And yet yeah. the way that you understand what happened is that um, they were originally planning to have the Defiant destroyed in this opening battle. And then I think it was, uh, was it Robert Wolf or someone, whoever was the DS9 producer? It might have been Ira Stephen Bear actually, um, came to the people that were making the movie and was like, you can't do that. We need it like the next week. Yeah, <laughs> he's like we're gonna do that later you can't do that now <laughs> so yeah so he was basically the one who inadvertently um i think they were like well what do you suggest we do and he was the one that was like throw in a line about how it's i don't know adrift but salvageable or whatever so i think that's uh, that's his contribution to the uh to the film is like we have to explain that the define is damaged but it can easily be picked up and taken to the assign and be fine next week i mean you know so but, uh, well, I guess we had to get Wolf on board somehow, so it achieved yep. that end as well. So, no, awesome. Uh, so and I'm yeah. so glad they did. I have a lot of Wharf thoughts in this in this film, and one of oh, them yes. happens in this one. You you mentioned it, where Riker is kind of nudging him. You know, hey, do you remember to, how to fire phasers? <laughs> but it's a real thing, right? So, Wharf has made a tremendous, like a dramatic transition from being the tactical mm. officer on Enterprise to essentially being the commanding officer of the Defiant over on Deep Space Nine. And when when you're the person who does the work and then you become the person who manages or leads the people doing work, like you better be getting rusty on your on your operational skills because you shouldn't be doing that work. And uh, Mm. so as a leadership nerd, I love that moment because it's one of those things where, hey, we all know like Riker's like, hey, we all know you're not what you used to be behind, you know, behind the trigger because you shouldn't be. But I'm going to I'm going to nudge you and have a ha ha because now we're both commanders. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> <Kind of a laughs> <I guess. laughs> yeah, that's one way to look at it that I hadn't considered, but I guess, yeah, you are right. Is that it's kind of um, there's a bit of camaraderie there. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. well, I guess we're kind of both equals, I suppose, in a way now because, yeah, they're colleagues. Like, I mean, they're yeah. ranked differently, but you know, but I mean, their, their jobs are so Barely, similar, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and I think you know, and that's the thing, you know, because uh, you know, Worf's primary job was you know, Cisco was commanding the station, and so Worf was going to command. 
uh, defiant unless Cisco was on board. And so Worf had that weird, I'm commanding officer, but I'm also first officer kind yeah. of a thing. And so he had a but, he had a unique camaraderie with Riker. I think he was kind of considered to be the first officer, well, the Starfleet version of the first officer of the station, because obviously it was Kira. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure he was like second officer or first officer if we're going by Starfleet ranks. So there was a lot of kind of, like I said, command, and that's why he ended up wearing the red instead of the yellow. So. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, must have confused the heck out of anybody who hadn't watched DS9 coming into this right. movie. <laughs> um, I'll move on anyway to the, the next uh, part of the movie then. So we arrive in Montana in, um, what is it, April the 4th, 2063. Uh, and we meet uh, Zephram Cochran and Lily as the Borg open fire. Uh, the Enterprise quickly destroys the sphere, conveniently setting up an Enterprise season two episode. And uh, they register where they are and why. So uh, Riker says, you know... Um, they, the humanity, the race of humans is weak after World War Three, and the Borg plan to stop first contact at a time when there's little resistance, which could be a key moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. The team beams down and Lily basically shoots at them with a machine gun, but um, she faints when Data does a terrible special effect on her uh, by <laughs> jumping down. To... <laughs> Hasn't aged well, unfortunately, that one scene, but never mind. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she's re- uh, revealed to be suffering radiation poisoning and Crusher takes her to sick bay. Uh, Picard and Data discuss the historical irony that it was a weapon of mass destruction that brought it an era of peace. Uh, and then there's one of the most humorous scenes from the movie, of which there's a few, um, but with basically Picard touching the phoenix and trying to explain to Data about, you know, he never could in the museum, but now he can touch it and uh, it connects you to objects in a personal way and then Data trying to imitate it and sort of, I can detect imperfections, but it's no more real to me. And it's the brilliance of uh, Councillor Troy popping her head out and like, would you three like to be alone? <laughs> it's just it's the, the killer punchline, I think, there, isn't it? So, um, I love that scene. I love all of the kind of humorous moments, and anything that Troy does in this film is great. So uh, We then get LaForge heading down with a repair team. Uh, but again, in terms of sort of, you want horror movie ominousness, he asks Porter to check the environmental controls because it's starting to get hot in engineering. <laughs> just a throwaway line. Nothing to worry about yet. <laughs> but uh, the, the two engineers crawl through the adren- the vents to address the problem, uh, and we hear mechanical noise off camera and see them scream uh, as things get very horror movie-esque. <laughs> so, um, sensing this, obviously, Picard leaves Riker in charge on the surface, uh, and him and Data beam back to the ship, uh, where it's revealed that the temperature on the Enterprise is now like that of a Borg ship on the decks that they control however many that might be. Uh, the Borg tried to access the main computer, but Picard has data quickly lock them out with an encryption code. Uh, Crusher in sickbay gets frustrated because she's near engineering where the Borg are basically taking over. Um, the lights start to flicker, and again, she mentions how hot it's become. So, yeah. <laughs> Nervous moments, I think. So um, my point here I was going to make, the talking point, was that I think, again, in terms of not, not to just constantly big up uh, Mr. Frakes, but I think the building of tension and the way this kind of mimics a horror movie like that is so good. Um, and I was curious if the slow buildup worked as well for you two as I think it does for me here. I think it worked really well for me. And um, I mean, I just remember watching it as a kid and being on the edge of my seat the entire time. Yeah. Did you remember? Um, did you really know what happened? Sorry, when you watched it for the first time, were you aware of like, it's getting hot? What does it mean? What's going on? <laughs> um, I was a, I was pretty quick on the ball with stuff like that when I was that age. Um, I had this, the the next generation technical manual that I'd been reading through. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I picked up that that wasn't, wasn't normal. Yeah. That's not standard. Enough. That's, that's deviating right. from standard by this much. <laughs> and what about you, Aaron? Did you fa- find yourself uh, really nervous and tense in these scenes or were you 
just go on oh, with yeah. the flow, shall we say? <laughs> so, so nervous. Um, as an adult, though, I recently watched it to prepare for this. And um, mm. the scene in the in the shafts and engineering where the, the two people get assimilated and you never see the Borg, mm -hmm. it's so classic horror movie of... Um, it is, yeah. Like the skittering and yes. the shadows playing across the wall. Um, I actually thought it was pretty funny imagining a Borg setting that up. Um, <laughs> oh, it doesn't make like, a lot of sense if you think about the logistics of it, because, <laughs> yeah, how does it work? But, uh, yeah, It is just a horror movie scene. It, it's, it's the chance to get, to, for Freaks to get the classic, um, we're not going to see the monster, but we will see the reaction to it. So you're zooming mm -hmm. in on the screaming face, but as you say, um, picturing the bug, you know, dragging, <laughs> dragging the um, the female engineer up and like across the tubes and whatever to be able to try and get into a good position to inject the nanoprobes right. would have been a hilarious, like sort of oh, get here because there's was, not a lot of space, was, you know. <laughs> it was very extra and good foreshadowing for how much the queen loves drama. <laughs> That's a very good point, actually. Yeah, yes, she is a bit of a drama queen. But, right, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, so much. I think so much of what made this work was the editing in in mm. this part, in the, the the way they put it together. Because you've got that just, just totally. I, I, I never like how ridiculous that whole Jeffrey's tube shaft thing, whatever scene is, where it's just that is ridiculous. But you've got the mm. horror happening there. But then on the bridge, you've got people like, hey, we've got this weird thing happening with environmental controls in sick bay. You've got Doctor Crusher like, hey, this is going on, and what's going on with the heat? Like just yeah. kind of day-to-day -day operation and the way they yeah. kind of layer that all in because you're like no there's something happening do yeah. something quick and they're just like yeah this is kind of weird let's investigate it yeah I will. it's normal i will say every time i watch this film when picard first beams up and wolf is just casually sitting in the captain's chair and he just sort of swivels around and he's like i was about to send a security team and i'm like a bit of urgency wolf the border yeah. on the ship for crying out loud man and he's just sat in the chair like oh something's wrong just the controls i don't know send the team maybe yeah. <laughs> just another casual thursday for wolf you know right he's like oh yeah this is happening <laughs> But I think this really sets up where a lot of the exploration of the film is going to go with Picard because now he walks in now, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's a, imagine, imagine you suffered a terrifying, horrible trauma and you've spent the last, you know, eight some odd years working to try to recover from that. And then all of a sudden you're kind of back in it. Um, mm. but not only are you kind of back in it, your experience from that trauma is really, really helpful and useful, you know, cause he's mm. able to come in and be like, this is what's wrong. This is what's happening. This is the plan that we need to do. And so he's living in this place where he's in command and he's making things happen, but he's also redredging up a lot of that trauma, um, and yeah. experiencing that in real time. And that's going to play out through the rest of the movie in very dramatic fashion. But I think this is the point right here where it really starts to hit. Definitely. And um, although there's a lot of very flashy acting that I think I could commend Patrick Stewart for no end, he has to get plaudits for me for delivering just the exposition in this scene and yet making it so kind of embedded in his trauma that you never think for one second that what he's saying is just literally we're getting the audience up to speed because it's like it's 39.1 degrees Celsius like a Borg ship. They knew they were doomed. They must have beamed aboard without being detected somehow. They'll set up a hive in engineering and then they'll assimilate the Enterprise and then the Earth. And I'm like, oh, my word. How are you delivering exposition but making it seem like I'm not just hearing, yeah, yeah, rattle off a list of plot points. Why don't we? Yeah. <laughs> so well done. Very good. It's also really ominous because throughout the entire movie, the people, the away team on the planet below 
has no idea the struggle that's happening on the ship and the mm. danger that everyone is in. Yeah. That's the other thing that I found really weird whenever I watched the movie is that he, he makes a brief reference to, you can't talk to them because we've lost contact, but we don't know why yet. And then they just get on with the Phoenix mission without giving it a second <laughs> thought of like trying to contact. And to the point where the Enterprise like it it's, approaches them in that very last scene and he's like, I'm sure they're just here to give us a send off. How do you know? Right. You know what the heck's going on? <laughs> They're here to say goodbye. Hey, why are they sh- why are they firing on? <laughs> oh, that's that's my my ultimate pet peeve in this movie is like talk about talking about the Borg Queen being a drama queen. There was no reason for Data to waste three torpedoes there. Seriously, and it would have scared the crap out of Cochrane, who didn't even acknowledge it. He'd be like, "What the, what are they doing?" <laughs> Just three torpedoes streaking by within ten feet of us. What's going on? <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's getting a bit ahead of myself. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll move back to where we were, which is um, the escape from Sickbay. Obviously, the Borg are about to burst through. So we get the brief uh, Robert Picardo cameo playing the mm-hmm. Enterprise EMH, not the same one from Voyager, uh, and giving it the classic Dr. McCoy, I'm a doctor, not a, in this case, doorstop joke. <laughs> um, so yeah, <laughs> and then just a funny moment as he tries to, to find some kind of uh, common ground with the Borg and talks about, you know, Starfleet. Uh, Research has detected that your implants cause skin irritation. Could I get you a cream or something? It's like yeah. just back them into a wall. <laughs> Again, that humor in the darkest of moments, it's great. Um, For me as a kid, that was actually so unsettling because it really grounded the experience of having uh, an implant, like oh, okay. bursting yeah. out of your skin, you know, like, oh, yeah, that would be irritating. And yeah. <laughs> Well, I also I was also afraid of doctors. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. where was I anyway? The Borg. Um... Yes, the Borg have invaded sick base. So then, uh, we have the armory sequence where we are mentioning um, what I'm calling Chekhov's plasma coolant tanks. Uh, we're bringing them up now so that we know what's going to happen. Like Chekhov's going, it will go off in the final act. So you know, <laughs> we mentioned that here, and then Picard goes full John McLean. Uh, even having a little vest equivalent of the Starfleet uniform to wear, <laughs> um, as he basically locks and loads and gives it all, uh, you know, the, the Borg will ignore us, but one more thing, if you encounter crew members who've already been assimilated, don't hesitate to fire, because you'll be doing them a favour. <laughs> so, yeah, things getting quite intense, and then almost as if on cue, we cut to the surface and we get the drunk Deanna Troy seed, <laughs> which serves as uh, our introduction to the real Cochrane. But it's also just a really hilarious scene of just Troy drunk out of a face on tequila trying to explain about, you know, timeline. It's no time to argue about time. We don't have time. <laughs> I feel like Marina Sirtis has experience of being drunk because that is exactly how I've seen a lot of drunk people act. <laughs> so when I was when I was rewatching it, my wife entered the room during that scene. She took a look at it and she said, you know, it's really impressive how Marina Sirtis is channeling Luxana Troy for her drunk. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. It's a good point. I can yeah. it as well. <laughs> She turns yeah. into her mom when she gets drunk. Mm. Oh, we could we could have a whole podcast episode about that. Just <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I just saw her desperately trying to maintain her composure and failing because she's like, she's you know telling Will to get off her as he's trying to just help her to stay up, and she's um she's trying to sound all professional and she's trying to get all composed and like, uh, it's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in in this kind of <laughs> pseudo posh way of like I'm doing my job. Don't criticize my tech. <laughs> but, <laughs> again, I've seen that happen by drunk people that are like, I am not drunk. I, <laughs> I refuse to acknowledge this. So, <laughs> it's just so funny. And like I said, uh, the performances, well, from everyone in this scene, because from Cromwell and uh, Frakes as well are just great as kind of support for this. Um, 
So yeah, I love that scene. And again, great use of humor. Uh, speaking of which, we go back to the Enterprise and uh, Data. As everyone starts seeing the kind of assimilated corridors and the Borg appearing, Data mentions he feels anxiety. Um, and Picard tells him to turn off his emotion chip. He uh, says it's a good idea and does so. Uh, and then Picard's line of Mr. Data, there are times I envy you, is both funny and incredibly impactful and true as well. Because, yeah. again, that's screenwriting 101 is like we need a way to tell the audience that these characters are all bricking it without actually having them just go, Mr. Data, I am incredibly anxious. And it achieves <laughs> that, and it's also funny. You know? So I love it. Because, um, again, it really does make you think, like, oof, you've got a right to be anxious. Uh, yeah. Data attempts to break into engineering, but he basically just snaps off the control, again, leading to Picard's fantastically sarcastic, perhaps we should just knock. <laughs> but, uh, Data basically is captured uh, and taken, dragged into engineering, um, the uh, yeah, there's several Borg are killed uh, trying to attack, but then they adapt. And then there's the really horrific scene, which still gets me and which terrified me as a kid of the um, security officer who's kind of helping them escape and then gets neck stabbed by the, mm -hmm. uh, what would you call it, the injection tubules, the nanoprobes, I guess. Yeah. Um, and we see firsthand for the first time this new kind of method of assimilation and how it's just literally, what's well, vampires, isn't it? You know, <laughs> Two stabs in the neck and then you're gone, you're dead. You know? <laughs> so, um, there's something horrific to me still of seeing the kind of grey veins and everything pulsing up that guy's face as he begs for help and Picard just shooting him dead. It's so brutal. It's like, oof, <laughs> what is happening? There was humour a minute ago. <laughs> you know? But uh, Yeah. Um, but I'll mention that later and ask what you guys think of that because I remember, mm -hmm. again, it's so, it's one of those, it's kind of like the transporter accident from the motion picture in terms of yeah. scenes from Trek movies that traumatize the crap out of me. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, uh, retreating through the hatches anyway, Picard is grabbed by Lily, leading to the sweet scene where he shows her Earth uh, and mentions that uh, she was going to basically uh, vaporize him if she'd fired the, the phaser and her kind of, it's my first ray gun. Uh, just sweetly, <laughs> not quite uh, understanding, and then you know, looking at the force fields and seeing Earth, and kind of being in awe in that nice Star Trekky way. Um, meanwhile, Data is strapped to a gurney, and for the first time, he has a very individual-sounding female voice from the rafters. But we don't yet see who it is. So uh, that's where I've took a pause here to ask a few questions. Uh, which the first of which is just: Did you also find that one scene deeply traumatizing? <laughs> I say when you were younger, I mean like now as well. It's pretty traumatic. Totally. Well, first yeah. the actor, oh my gosh, mm. it was so good. I mean, like you, I so believed his terror and his fear. Mm. I mean, the pain. Between, yeah, yeah the, the makeup. The, I mean, it was just, it was so well done. And uh, yeah, that was, I mean, I think that we've seen, you know, forms of assimilation maybe or, or moments of it in other Star Trek where you're like, okay, yeah, I mean, that sucks, but okay but you watch that and you're like yeah no i would want picard to shoot me if uh yeah if that happened. exactly yeah oh man Some, something so relatable about just screaming for help and then that actor just absolutely selling the kind of just do something and then picard just zap doom uh yeah Oof, horrible but uh, what about you erin <laughs> were you also traumatized are we bringing up past trauma for you here as well? <laughs> well it was it was an intense scene um I feel like as as a kid watching it for the first time, I was already terrified. So when that happened, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, <laughs> yeah. As an adult, it sinks into me how heavy that is and how hard it is to watch Picard be almost unhinged in mm. a way. Like yeah. he's 
he's hiding it well, but yeah. 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 I know what you mean. That's kind of a theme this movie. Yeah. It's I don't know if I would necessarily say he'd done the wrong thing, obviously, but um Mm -hmm. it is still very jarring to see happen and you just really feel for the poor guy because it is a matter of like say there's times before this in next gen when assimilation it would be a matter of it would never have been instant it would have been the bug grab you and carry you somewhere and then mm. you know and then you come back and strip you and plug some attached parts to you and whatever and but seeing mm. it literally is just like this guy was just there one moment the next he's injected something in him and bang he's gone <laughs> it's just ouch <laughs> but uh yeah one of many uh horrible moments i think for me um the yeah. next thing i, I was gonna well, uh, sorry and on the, i was gonna say on there too because you had said i don't think that picard did the wrong thing and i and i agree i don't think he did the wrong thing but i think it's the how he did it mm-hmm. like that, that was is telling and you know this comes up later in the film but he was absolutely heartless when yeah. he did it there was no emotion and no no acknowledgement that like literally four seconds ago they were on the same not only team or crew but they were on the same squad moving through yeah. they were, their, their lives depended on each other and he just i mean he took a breath and pulled the trigger boom just no second thought and we know jean-luc picard at this point you know in the in in, in star trek and that's so not picard Mm-hmm. To just 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 so coldly and heartlessly do that, even though it was it was you you argue the mercy behind it, but I just think yeah. like there was that that moment earlier where he starts getting into his trauma that I talked about earlier, and then like this is the point where it operationalizes, and then mm-hmm. now now he's on the roller coaster, <laughs> the roller coaster that will be trauma, where Lily will be sitting <laughs> right next to him in the car for yeah. Him. Yeah, definitely. I think for me as all this, again, just tell me if this is just me, you know, projecting my own thing. But for me, it also, I think when I first watched it and then every time since again, it emphasizes to me how serious the threat of the Borg are, because it is Mm -hmm. kind of like the film telegraphing. This is not, we don't have time to sit and lament and, you know, eulogize this chap and whatever. We are in a horrible, you know, war situation. This guy is down where, you know, we've already mentioned killing him would be doing him a favor compared to the alternative and, like you said, Picard is no nonsense and just no time to waste. Just zap, killed, move on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So it's like this is how serious this threat is. We we kind of have to sacrifice a bit of our own humanity to fight this inhuman threat because it is so relentless. Um, which again is a horrifying thought. But yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Yeah, my next question was just going to be: What did you guys think of the true introductions of Cochrane and Lily? Um, and the way that they kind of, uh, they, they seem like something else. And then Cochrane turns out to be the kind of drunk, doesn't care. And Lily seems kind of aggressively anti-everything and then basically becomes the ideal, oh, wow, Earth from orbit is so beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think um, I think that makes a lot of sense for Lily, actually, because seeing the juxtaposition between her and Cochrane in the very beginning when we're first yes. introduced, she's yeah. she seems like the true believer. She's yeah. put her blood, sweat, and tears into this project that Cochrane is the theorist behind, but she seems to have done most of the work. Yeah. And it's her so, that says to get to the Phoenix, isn't it, when they first get yeah. attacked? And he's like, ah, screw the Phoenix or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I can see I can see Picard's speech to her and showing her Earth from orbit. Like, yeah, it makes sense because she wants to believe that. Yeah. I love that she is she is kind of the Star Trek ideal. I'll mention it later, I'm sure, but throughout the movie she kind of is that 
morality personified that we we needed, yeah. I think, desperately, especially since they decided that Cochrane wasn't going to be that because they were telling a different story. And, you know, whether you believe the Roddenberry analogy or not, he couldn't necessarily mm-hmm. give you that. So we had Lily to fill that, fill that in. And, you know, so there still was somebody at first contact who was that hopeful, kind of bright-eyed, I guess, um, optimist <laughs> who was there. So, yeah, I like that a lot. And I think she was a bright-eyed optimist that, that came from horror, right? She was, yeah, I mean, yeah. if, if not in World War III, was, you know, like, you know, part of the factions and the, the, the battles happening afterwards. She was, she was a war-hardened individual who had a dream and was willing to work hard to make that dream happen. And when, when he opened that, you know, the no-glass window. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. It, it showed her that, like, I think in that moment, she's just like, everything that I've dreamt is possible. You know, yeah, and, and it became so real. Yeah, I I love everything about Lily. I think every reaction yeah. that she had, everything she did is so perfect for a person who's experienced what she has. Completely, and I agree with you in terms of like kind of talking about somebody who's emerged from trauma as more hopeful. There's something really, and I don't want to get, get into it too much because it's not really my place, but there's something quite powerful about the fact that they cast a black woman to play that role as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of real life, non-World War Three type trauma that we can already pull from there is like oof yeah, especially if you <laughs> want to talk who's... about a especially if you want to talk about a white guy theorist who has a lot of great ideas and then the woman of color who actually makes it happen but that's a yeah that a and then gets forgotten by history quite... because the, yeah. the white guy yeah. gets, gets a statue yeah. and she gets forgotten but you know yeah. again horribly uh realistic perhaps but we're not here to discuss that necessarily um so yeah the last talking point that i was going to mention was just um do you do you both think it was an effective introduction to the queen to have the kind of disembodied voice and not know what or who she was at first, but be so intrigued by it? Because obviously we hadn't heard Borg talk at this point. Mm-hmm. And it was very, I remember feeling it was really weird. and like, who's this? What's going on? I thought it was a great twist. And then it lets you yeah. sit in it a little bit before it comes back and introduces her. Yeah, exactly. I do love that, that it doesn't, it's, as you said, it, there's whole scenes between just hearing a disembodied female voice and then revealing her. Um, so you are left yep. thinking, like, what is that? What's going on? That's not the collective voice. What is it? And you got data there asking all those questions that you have. Yes, right? like, exactly. It's like, yeah. well, I think that, so there is no I. You're a collective. What's this? And I mean, yeah, it was just that, that I think that was a fantastic introduction. Yeah, exactly. Uh, awesome. So moving on, then we get the uh, the surface team briefing Cochrane on the Borg and the specifics of what first contact will be and its meaning. Um, he sees the Enterprise through the telescope, uh, initially not believing, but then realizing and beautifully name drops the franchise for the first time. Uh, you <laughs> people, you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. <laughs> In, insert DiCaprio recognition meme. <laughs> <laughs> he said the but, thing, yeah. the thing. He, he said the thing. <laughs> but yeah, he agrees to basically help because, you know, why not? And yeah, he's heard all of this. So then we cut to the Borg Queen introducing herself properly to Data, which again, it's been said a million times, but how good is the special effect of the disembodied head lowering from the ceiling into the body and it's all one shot with no breaks and it's it's beautiful it's just i I, i'm in awe of special effects when moments like that when it's like how was it how did it happen and then i saw the behind the scenes of how it was done and for some reason i was even more impressed because it's like alice krieg lying just spread eagled flat on a board so that her head pokes through this prosthetic (laughs) (laughs) you know it's so weird to see like her in like a blue body stocking type thing all the way down so it's blue screened out and yeah, the fact that they're able to do that, and then in, in place of having the camera cut away, they have the clip sort of pulling the skin in to disguise the fact that they're cutting from the effect to like now she's in full mm. costume and walking away kind of thing. 
it's I love it. It's brilliant. The special effects nerd in me just I could just watch <laughs> this one scene and talk about over and over how good it is. Um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so then she basically starts uh, explaining herself in some really good, but let's be honest, pretty cryptic dialogue because the concept of a queen doesn't make sense. Um, so they just address that by techno babble and kind of you know, whatever else. Um, she activates it as a motion chip, which leads to some great acting by Brent Spiner as he tries to claim he's not frightened, but clearly is. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, the queen reveals the arm skin and seductively blows on it. Uh, but then makes the obvious clanger reference of "Was that good for you?" <laughs> Which is a bit, a bit kind of on the nose even for me. I'm like, oh, love, <laughs> Just yeah, dial it down like one notch, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, Picard briefs Lily about the future, the Federation, and the Borg, and how many incorrect corridors the ship has. <laughs> so they walk through um, again. Just beautiful humor in the tense moment is. Um, the Borg sounds Swedish. Then she sees the Borg screams and just responds, definitely not Swedish. <laughs> Always <laughs> makes me laugh. Um, Picard, of course, goes into the Dixon Hill holodeck program, which is a nice callback to his love of those uh, books in Next Gen. Um, mm-hmm. He explains how holographic bullets can kill and basically shoots the Borg with a Tommy gun uh, and breaks into just pure rage in, again, a brilliant acting moment uh, as Lily reveals that it's one of Starfleet's uniforms on the Borg and Picard points out that it was Ensign Lynch. Uh, and Lily just, I think, at that moment, along with the rest of us, is like, ah, there's a little bit of uh, oof, <laughs> disconnect here from uh, from reality just going on. Um, as if that, if that opening scene of the shooting the guy because he'd been assimilated wasn't bad enough, now he's just savagely beating on this poor Ensign Lynch guy. Uh, but yeah, um, back on the surface, uh, we have the Reg Barkley cameo as he kind of um, makes Sephiroth Cochrane nervous with the hero worship. Like, I want to shake your hand. <laughs> um, he makes a pee joke, basically. You know, I have to take a leak. Don't <laughs> <laughs> which is always appreciated. Um, and tries to run off, uh, which is then the scene basically leaves us there. Um, on the Enterprise, Picard and Lily arrive at the bridge and it's revealed that the Borg uh, have stopped their advance at deflector control. Uh, Picard surmises it's to contact the Delta Quadrant and bring reinforcements via the Borg of this era uh, and asks if Worf remembers his zero-G training, suggesting (laughs) that they take a little stroll. Uh, And again, I took a pause there. (laughs) I remember that um, it made me sick to my stomach. (laughs) (laughs) What are you suggesting? (laughs) I love that. And then just as they go out, just like, how are you doing, Mr. Worf? Not well, sir. (laughs) Try not to focus at the stars, just look on the hull. And the camera pans out to show us the ship just upside down, completely jarringly as we're kind of like, what (laughs) is going on? But uh, yeah, awesome. Um, so the first question I have here is obviously just how, how about that Borg Queen introduction? Were you all as impressed as I was? Or um, is it uh, one of those things where special effects have advanced so much it's not as impressive maybe anymore? I think it's still really neat. And yeah. the, the detail of when she goes into the um, the suit and the clamps uh, attach and then pull at her skin is mm. like it just really... They did a great job on that. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been... It could have been so corny now. Like mm-hmm. that that's an effect you like I think you even said it. You would expect to not age well, right? But yeah, it looks awesome still. It's horrifying, it's gross, and it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just so it's compelling. And um again, related to what you were saying, there's you mentioned there's probably some HR Giga, HR Geiger influence. Um, mm-hmm. and I remember reading that um, there was that, but there was also I don't know if you've ever seen uh, is it Captain EO the movie? Um, where yeah. Angelica Houston plays this kind of disembodied female cyborg. 
uh, oh, wow. some obvious and shaking, I think, from that as well. And obviously, given that it's kind of advanced technology in cinema, there's always going to be the forebearer of um, the false Maria robot from Metropolis, which I think all mm-hmm. female cyborgs kind of owe a debt to. So um, I can kind of see that lineage as well. Uh, in terms of like, you know, robot who is too seductive compared to humans and kind of thing. So, yeah, I love it. Um, I just love the the way the Queen's portrayed in the film is, uh, as much as I don't love the concept of the book having a Queen necessarily, I think the portrayal and the acting just sells it to me and the direction. So, uh, awesome. Yeah, I think kind of to what Aaron was saying earlier, that her approach to try and seduce Data in there, I mean, was the perfect approach. And she played, I mean... I, I I just I mean you can't there's so many just great acting performances in this thing and mm. Alex Krieg just that perfect mix of manipulation of, of seduction sexiness right I mean for mm. for a, a, a slimy zombie she just kind of exudes <laughs> this sexuality that is is magnetic you know where you're like I get it I get why Data is reacting this way also I feel gross for understanding I mean it's just yeah. it creeps her performance and the special effects and the makeup created this cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. that really, I, I think, put you in Data's position in a really, really good way. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, because as I say, I think there's, there's a degree of admiring the special effects as well. That's kind of like, oh, it looks beautiful that you've achieved this. And then you find yourself like admiring the queen herself and you're like, oh, that's yeah. not good. <laughs> What's going on yeah. here? I think also if you did this scene, if you did this scene any earlier, in Star Trek, right? Any, it, it mm-hmm. wouldn't work um, no. because the effects wouldn't have been there. And I can just, I can just, I can, I can look back and imagine if they did this in even one of the TOS movies or even TOS itself. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd love to see it. I'd pay real money to see it, but I would see it once and I'd laugh. It wouldn't have bothered lot. with the effects. It would have just ended up looking something like the Ilea probe from the motion picture. It would just be a woman with like a gem on her head or something. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, fair enough. Uh, the other question I was going to ask was just, do you guys, uh, what do you think of the, uh, the the placement of the holodeck in the story? Does it make sense to you? And uh, do you like how it was used to uh, explain the Borg's ability to adapt and how, you know, Tommy Gunn would work better? <laughs> Again, for a non-Trek viewer, it would probably be very <laughs> jarring to just go from horror movie about cyborg zombies to now we're in a nightclub scene in a 40s and detective noir you know <laughs> oh it was entirely for the fans yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> they even brought back like uh ruby for the dixon hill novels yeah. so yes exactly. it was, yeah, it was yeah. great but i would be confused if i didn't if i hadn't watched tng yeah because there's even well he's in there and he's like, this is the wrong chapter. You know, and all of a sudden, yes. you, you have to come in with a level of knowledge about a hollow novel, right? In order for that to really make a lot of sense. I think they do kind of see this is where I have a bit of cognitive dissonance because being a track fan, I can't speak to how well it does it. But I think the fact that Picard explains, well, Lily explains it first at the end, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was a bunch of holograms. And then Picard explains without the safety protocols, even a holographic bullet could kill. I think that gives you as much as you would need if you were a first-time viewer, hopefully, oh, yeah. uh, to, to get it. You know, <laughs> but, uh, it is just a weird kind of placement in the script because they just think like, I get that you know f- functionally it's there because you need somewhere to kill a Borg so that you can get mm-hmm. the beacon and figure out their plan, and but in an why... unexpected way. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It just it's kind of like what was somebody smoking that day when they were like, I have an idea, <laughs> a Dixon Hill holodeck program. That's how we'll do it. <laughs> the entire thing was orchestrated to get Patrick Stewart in that suit and to get him with the <laughs> and Alfred Woodard in that dress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that one guy with yeah. that nose. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, as we head back in, then the three guys begin their walk onto the deflector, as we mentioned. Uh, in engineering, the Borg Queen has some just epic dialogue, uh, which I wouldn't even try to get into because it's like a full page, but basically <laughs> continuing to try to tempt Data, referring to his quest to be human and how the perfection that they've achieved is by the mixture of organic and technological. Um, she then basically just asks him to have sex in a pretty famous scene. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you know, um, I'm fully functional. How long has it been since you used them? Which again, with Kiki accuracy, he gives us a date that points exactly back to his um, relationship with Tasha Yar in The Naked Now. Uh, so all of us Trekkies in the cinema were like, oh, we know. <laughs> Even though it would mean nothing to anybody else. But yeah, still very well acted though, that scene, as you say, because the Queen, through all these prosthetics, has to be seductive and has to actually seem genuinely sexy and then has seen where she has to effectively say let's have sex and kiss him and you have to believe it and it could so easily have been terrible and just you know dropped like a clanger but somehow it works through the use of acting and stuff so kudos to uh to brent and alice i think in that one um yeah and then obviously the deflector action scene what can you say it's just one of my favorite action scenes in cinema just because it's genius it uses the unique nature of the anti-gravity. Uh, the fact that it involves three people having to do the mag lock just kind of makes logical sense, but also gives you the stakes perfectly so that you can ramp it up with, with each scene that goes by. The fact that you have one person get assimilated, one person seem to suffer an emergency decompression, but then figure out a way around it, you know? Um, just all of this, it's just this entire sequence. It's, it's not something I could describe because it's not really a very wordy type thing. It's very visual, but it's just a really impressive, incredibly directed action scene, and I recommend uh, anyone watching it. Um, so, yeah, that basically leads to them eventually foiling the Borg, although they have lost uh, Lieutenant Redshirt, or Lieutenant Hulk, sorry. Um, <laughs> it's glorious um, in terms of kind of... Uh, Wharf moments in this film, like you mentioned, when uh, they kind of free the deflector to stop them from sending a signal, and Wharf just gives it assimilate this when yeah. he blows it up. <laughs> That's one powerful, uh... one powerful phaser rifle right there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they did mention that it was charged with antiprotons, and if you you know hit something, it would blow up half the ship. So it's yeah. disconnected. You just hit the right spot, and it blows up the deflector. I guess. But uh, with Wharf too, cool. like. Hey, we're going to get in your zero G gear that you hate. Also, uh, just going to happen to pack a knife because why not? <laughs> yeah, bring your mechless. Just in yeah, case. exactly. <laughs> just down the down the like, um, the suit foot or whatever as well of the spacesuit, as if that isn't just a danger waiting to happen. Just popping out yeah. the bottom. Oops, don't decompression. Bend. You've got the suit. <laughs> yeah, don't bend in the weird way because you're going. <laughs> but again, I love he's how they being do the it action too. hero. This whole scene where he's like, he's like, oh no, this Borg's coming. And it's literally the scene from Austin Powers where the steamroller is coming at him. It's so slow. <laughs> he's like, oh no, there's a Borg. I guess, I guess what I'm going to do is slowly reach. Are you getting this camera? I'm going to reach behind me. You see? Good angle. Cool. I brought my necklace. I brought my knife. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true of um, the scene with Hawk as well, though. Because the Borg advancing on him, you, you as a viewer, again, yeah. you're doing that horror movie thing where you're screaming the whole time. For crying out loud, just look up. It's approaching you at no speed. You've got ample time to defend yourself. And he's there struggling with the flipping controls. Like, yeah. oh, this is stuck. I'm not going to look up at all. <laughs> like, I, love, that... I love, though, also how the Borg <laughs> just ignored them until they, like, you know, flipped the they, chips yeah. around. Then they're like, oh, hey, oh, no, there's something going on over here. Here we go. What are you trying to do? Yeah, that's the Borg's uh, entire thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Ignore till you're a threat or a target. But, now yeah. I'm going to walk in like... 
at the speed of molasses running uphill to give you every <laughs> chance to respond, but I know you're not going to. So here we go. Um, one last thing about that team that I will say that I always loved because I just thought it was really clever is that because they adapt, obviously they have to come up with other ways. And so Wharf, you know, cutting on knife. Hawk, <laughs> uh, you know, just sacrifice yourself, give up. Uh, but Picard's brilliant technique of like firing at the sort of surface yeah. so that it basically uh, pops out like a jet of steam that just blows the Borg off into space. I'm like, that is genius. <laughs> Who thought of that yet again? You know, just great action moments. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a that's fun awesome. scene. Uh, yeah, the Borg Queen, of course, immediately notices and mentions they have a change of plan because she does not seem happy that uh, they're kind of beacon or whatever has now been destroyed. Uh, we cut back to the surface. Uh, Cochrane has been phasered to basically stop him from running away. Um, and again, we hear that Jordy mentioned about the statue of Cochrane and <laughs> as Riker chastises him for, oh, you told him about the statue. Because <laughs> he was all, I don't want to be a statue. <laughs> I love the humour here. It's Again, it's uh, it's just banter back and forth, but it's so good. I couldn't do it justice, but yeah, trust me, it's funny. <laughs> so because he's been phasered and now he's ready, um, he's now in the Phoenix, uh, getting prepared to make the flight for first contact, uh, mentioning that he's hungover and it's either from the whiskey or the laser beam or both, <laughs> which again, fair enough. Um, and then I, again, this is the scene I mentioned earlier in terms of like, how did we not see that this might be an allegory for Roddenberry? Cause it's Riker talking about, you know, I don't think you're a saint, but you had a vision and, uh, Cochran mentioning his vision was of dollar signs and money and retiring to a tropical island of naked women. He doesn't even fly. He takes trains. You know? <laughs> so, um, and then Riker giving it, someone once said, don't try to be a great man, just be a man and let history make its judgments. That's rhetorical nonsense. Who said that? You did. Ten years from now. It's <laughs> just one of those great time travel type moments that blows your mind, isn't it? So uh, very nice. Um, very, uh, yeah, Roddenberry-esque, I think. Um, Cutting back to the Enterprise then, on the bridge, Picard is determined to stay and fight, but Worf and Crusher suggest that the Enterprise is lost at this point. Um, Picard basically insults Worf rather stupidly, calling him a coward who wants to run away. Uh, Worf points out quite rightly that if he was any other man, he would kill him where he stands, uh, and Picard orders him off the bridge. Uh, Crusher suggests the, that, you know, that once the captain's made up his mind, the decision is done. He stormed off into the observation lounge, but Lily is not having it and decides to follow him. Um, I'm going to move to the next scene because it's my favourite scene in cinema history, <laughs> basically, which is that observation lounge scene. Um, surprises oh, yeah. me how late in the film it comes because I always just imagined it was more of the midpoint. But yeah, basically Picard uh, heading to his, the observation lounge and then um, I can't praise it enough. A perfect example as Lily basically talks him through um, of how writing can lead you to a main character change in their mind, but you absolutely follow along and you believe it. Um, so it's Lily sort of talking Picard through how Everyone thinks that staying and fighting is suicide, but Picard understands the Borg, and then she compares him to Ahab in Moby Dick, and he doesn't see it at first, and then rages out, destroys the model spaceships, um, takes a moment in the quiet as Lily just reinforces the Ahab comparison so that then he kind of it registers with him, and he repeats a, a you know, passage of dialogue, or a, a misquote slightly, a passage from the book. Um, and then you actually literally, as I said, follow the process of changing his mind throughout this scene, and it's just so well acted. Like I said, I cannot mention enough just how they should study this scene in acting classes, and yeah, I just absolutely love it. And I love that, like I said, that it would be so easy to just be at a place where you know the plot has to have Picard change his mind, and the scene that does it is kind of disappointing or a letdown, but I think it delivers everything it needs to, and I completely believe every word out of both actors' mouths and... Uh, yeah. Yeah, the motivation I'm just following all the way. Yeah, Picard basically changes his mind, gives the evacuation order, and again has the most awesome moment with Worf as he basically regrets what he said. 
uh, to him, and I just love that it takes the film takes that moment there, um, uh, sets the self destruct uh, with Crusher and Wolf, and then there's a little bit of lamenting to the Enterprise E, and will they build another one? Yes, there's plenty of letters left in the alphabet, which is a nice moment. Um, Picard's about to leave, but here's Data. Uh, presumably amongst the Borg consciousness, I don't know. <laughs> um, and as Lily suggests, he goes to find his friend uh, because he mentions he owes him since Data and Wolf were the ones that rescued him from the Borg ship uh, back in Next Gen. So yep. uh, where are we? Um, the Phoenix is ready, but Cochrane has forgotten something, so they panic uh, till he reveals that it's basically just a little future compact disc, I guess, and he blasts <laughs> a magic carpet ride as uh, indeed this one starts rocking to the stars. <laughs> so that's your Phoenix takeoff scene, which is good. Um, Picard enters engineering visibly unnerved as the Borg Queen uh, asks Locutus if something's familiar. He suddenly remembers that she was at Wolf 359 and a bit of a dodgy retcon um, and <laughs> says that he thinks in small terms because the ship was destroyed, but okay. <laughs> he mentions again, uh, you wanted an equal and a counterpart. Uh, again, retcon, but okay, we'll follow it. Um, he volunteers to give himself willingly, but Data, with now visible human skin, won't go. Uh, and she reveals she's already found her equal, and Picard will make an excellent drone. So uh, I stopped here for one final pause before the final act, just to say, do we have thoughts on Picard's vendetta and on that scene? Are we all as impressed as I am with it in the observation lounge? I am. Oh, yeah. yeah. So good. Mm. I think when I, I, I think a lot of... I think of this movie as part four of best of both worlds right so you got best of mm. both worlds one and two uh family is part three and then this is part four in there That's and it, yeah. he starts to process through his trauma in family he starts to right in here nearly a decade has passed and this is like that moment where it comes to a head we see something like this um echoed in not to this extreme point but we see it somewhat echoed in season one of picard where he yeah. talks about how the Borg are just monsters. They're, they're, they're relentless. They are, what did he say? They, they don't change. They metastasize. Mm -hmm, um, and yeah. he just has so much hatred for them. Yeah. He reaches some catharsis, I think, in Picard. But this is, I think, so good. And Lily, Lily is just perfect. Could you imagine not just standing up to Jean-Luc Picard, but standing up to Patrick Stewart yeah. right in this moment? And she... <laughs> She is there for it and is so yeah. good. This scene is tour de force. Absolute. It really is. I've mentioned it before, but I think if award ceremonies and things weren't so biased against science fiction, for me, genuinely, this is like an award-winning scene between yep. these two actors that would, if this was a drama or a, I don't know, historical epic or whatever, you'd be talking Oscars, I think, personally. Yeah. Um, not wanting to sound too highfalutin, but I do think it's that good a performance from both um, Patrick Stewart and Alfred Woodard. And as you say, the mm -hmm. fact that they're both basically challenging each other in terms of like who's going to be the best actor in the scene is impressive as well. So yeah, definitely love it. Um, uh, so are we okay with the kind of retcons to the Borg Queen being there during Best of Both Worlds? Or uh, yeah, not so much. <laughs> I'm okay with it. Um, I mean, I have a, I've had a long time to come to peace with it though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. I guess I, I don't see. I don't know because I don't love the fact that it also leads to Picard. I've never been all right with him volunteering to kind of. And I get the whole point is that it's a self-sacrifice and it's nobility, yeah. as the Queen says, and it's to mm -hmm. try and save data. But I'm like, there's not really anywhere near enough like level of trauma to him as he basically volunteers to become Locutus forever and whatnot. And I'm like, 
this scene just jars with me horribly, and I don't know if you need it. I don't know if you need to mention that the Queen was necessarily there the whole time at the Wolf 359. Um, you know, you could even just mention that they'd briefly met and she did off in a shuttle or something. I don't know. But for <laughs> me, that scene is a little jarring. Um, yeah. What about you, Jeff? <laughs> you know, I, th- I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of with Aaron on this, where I think at first... Um, it felt weird. I don't even know if it did at first and it does a little weird, but I think in the end, it's kind of one of those, well, okay. Okay. Things. I I think a lot of this though is built to set up what's going to come with data Mm -hmm. when he fires the torpedoes. Like this is all that to set up. But I think it's, they had so much foresight when they put this film out that they were planting seeds for Picard season one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, again unintentionally but yeah i think right, right. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah i think it was fully intentional you know they, they clearly have the whole universe planned out at this point but <laughs> but i think the the scenes at the end of season one of picard um and really the whole thing showing just the impact of data's death um mm. you know and, and everything and how they come together to me that makes his his willingness to sacrifice himself for data in that scene makes sense right at the time and in the moment i I agree i think it was a little extreme for him to be like yeah sure i'll go into that hell again no problem but when i have that end cap of him and data in that study in the quantum place where they were Mm -hmm. connecting oh okay yeah now it does make sense to me um it just took 30 years or 20 years or whatever to to make that yeah. scene make sense for me. That's fair. I appreciate that perspective, actually. That is a, a very, uh, yeah, a good way of uh, conceptualizing that a bit better in uh, in my head as well. So, yeah, it's fair enough. Um, the other thing I was just going to mention here, because I haven't yet briefly, is to say um, massive props to the soundtrack to this movie. And I'm not just talking about a couple of kind of rock and roll needle drops, which are good. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Jerry Goldsmith's score throughout is just outstanding, isn't it? Um so, yeah, I have to mention, I, I saw a few reviews that said that, and I'm like, yes, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, um, yeah. totally. Um, oh, the score is fantastic. Um, oh, and the, the the introduction of the Klingon bit when Worf makes his appearance, and <laughs> I think even the main uh, theme of the movie makes its way into Picard season one mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love the way that the main theme plays on the opening and closing credits, though, to, yeah. to soaring kind of effect. It's very good. Um, Star yeah. Trek does soundtracks so, I mean, so well. Always. Yeah. From <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. But as I said, also as well, props to deciding to use Steppenwolf um, as the Phoenix takes off and then just random Roy Orbison at the very end of the movie. So, yeah. <laughs> Roy Orbison's the Ubi Doobie song, right? Yeah, yeah, which apparently the people that made the film hate and said that they wish they'd chosen oh a different God. song now. <laughs> but what the so heck? <laughs> I thought it would be so funny if like all of the Starfleets knew the Ubi Doobie song from like <laughs> primary school civics <laughs> right it's, it's become part like of first contact, contact day yeah, yeah. <laughs> like oh yeah i remember having to listen to this in school every first contact day school kids just have to arrange an orchestra to play ubi dooby <laughs> <laughs> love it <laughs> fair enough um so yeah i'll get into the final act then which obviously uh, just to conclude things we've been here a while so um the phoenix prepares to engage but we've mentioned already drama queen data decides to waste three torpedoes um mm-hmm. and then Changes his mind within a millisecond and barks a quick Schwarzenegger style catchphrase of uh, resistance is futile. Uh, again, we, we mentioned already they set up the plasma coolant tanks, which here obviously get smashed and they melt the Borg Queen along with Data's new skin, uh, which 
yeah, the Queen tries to jump out. Data basically saves Picard by pulling her into the coolant that melts her. Um, the Queen's death conveniently disables every other Borg on board the ship. And yeah, there's uh, lovely references with um, Zephyr Cochrane when he, he goes to warp and then looks back and says the Earth looks so small, but it's about to get bigger. Um, yeah. Calling back to Riker seeing the moon in an earlier scene and mentioning that it was so different in his time because you could see... You know, the people living there in Tycho City and New Berlin and Lake Armstrong and everything. So um, it's quite that sort of trek, like, oh, moment. You know? um, the ship lands and the Vulcans are revealed to much pomp and circumstance. Uh, the Teplana Hats lands and basically we get, again, a really sweet scene of the Vulcans giving a long and prosperous salute. Cochrane not being able to do it and simply shaking their hand and saying thanks, which is really sweet. Um, Picard and Lily have a very sweet moment of just um, Picard, uh, Lily envying the world Picard's going to and Picard envying Lily living through history, basically. Um, and as we mentioned, the Enterprise just duplicates the Borg time travel somehow with a couple <laughs> of button presses and heads back to the future. So, yeah, why not? <laughs> they go, they, they hit a speed of 88 warps per hour. <laughs> and <is> a... <laughs> Exactly. So the final things I was going to mention then for talking points before we get into the bigger sort of uh, favorite moments and stuff was just, do you find the conclusion satisfying or a bit too silly? Um, is the first contact moment really powerful for you? It, it connects to me. Um, and yeah, first contact, it launched a spinoff for Star Trek D and it's become hugely famous. Um, so can you perhaps put your finger on what it is that's become so that that, that moment has become like a pivotal cornerstone in Trek fandom as much as it has in the false fake history of this world? I know that's a lot of questions, but... <laughs> uh, yeah. I think, I, I think I still have a hard time with Lily not getting any credit for this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that, yeah. I um, think it makes sense, and they telegraphed the um, plasma conduit yes. solution really early. I think that was just really good writing, setting like. up yeah, expectations, yeah. and then following through. Yeah, and it does kind of fit the horror movie theme because it's surprising to me that it literally shows you the flesh literally melting off yeah. of the screen. Oh, yeah. I was like, wow, they mm. are showing you this, aren't they? You know, so yeah, and then still have Picard smash the metal spine just to make sure. So yeah. <laughs> next thing I asked you uh, both for was uh, your favorite character moment and line, um, and we'll all three of us uh, give that. So we'll start with saying, what's your favorite character in the movie? Uh, and I'll start with you, Erin. I'm going to go with Riker. Um, okay. I I just really like Riker in general, but, um, and this ties <laughs> into my, uh, it's all tied together, but um, when he finds Deanna and Cochran in the <laughs> beginning, how he and Deanna have this long running relationship, right? They're very mm -hmm. close. It goes way back. There's not an, a hint of jealousy of like, how dare you talk to her like that? He absolutely trusts her to be in control of the situation. <laughs> and then he realizes she's drunk. And it's just like, he's just having fun with yeah. this person that he's very good friends with. Yeah, that's true. That's fair enough. Okay, awesome. Um, so was that your, your main reasons for Riker? Just the kind of uh, relatability, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so what about you, Jeff? Who's your favorite character in the movie and why? I, I go back and forth between Lily and Worf. And okay. uh, Lily, I think for obvious reasons, I mean, we've talked about her throughout throughout this whole conversation and just how awesome she is and how she provides that um, that Star Trek, you know, that we yeah. all we all need. But I think Worf, 
man, Worf, <laughs> Worf just got the short end of the stick through all seven seasons <laughs> of The Next Generation. But he's so on point through this whole thing. And I think, again, like I can't help but look at things through that leadership kind of lens. And what we're seeing is someone in their young steps of going from being an expert in their field to becoming, you know, an overall leader of a, of a, of a full organization. And he plays that so well where he puts himself in uncomfortable situations with the deflector dish. He comes in and is immediate, like he's still like bloodied up from getting off the defiant when he comes on the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And he's like, where can I help? Where can I, you know, yeah. I'm going to do this thing all the way to the end where he calls Picard on his BS. And he's like, I yeah. would, I would, if, if you weren't so amazing, I would, I would kill you right now. Yeah. And then to me, it comes around to where Picard acknowledges that he's screwed up. I'm going to, I'm going to say my favorite character in this one was Worf. Fair enough. Um, my favorite character was Lily, but it's for a lot of the similar reasons that you already kind of mentioned. So um, I just said, again, I went back and forth. I could have picked Picard or a, a few others, but it was definitely Lily because she's the Star Trek spirit, even though she's from before mm -hmm. the kind of correct time in universe, which is all the more impressive. Um, and she's the one who literally has to push both Cochrane and Picard to do the right thing, ultimately. Um, she's the voice of reason for both. What is your favorite moment or scene in the film then? Uh, and again, Aaron will begin with you. The holodeck scene. <laughs> wow, okay. It's I was so... the one that I thought was most out of place, but okay. <laughs> it's very out of place. It's very out of place, but it's just campy. It's fun. It's uh... <laughs> okay. Nikki the nose <laughs> striking the match on his nose. It's great. Yeah, great cameo. Like by you do campy fun as well, so it's mm -hmm. just as valid, I guess. Awesome. Um, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you were saying. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Uh, Ethan Phillips was like, it's it's always fun seeing somebody yeah. uh, like a cameo like that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he was awesome, too. I loved I yeah. loved how he played the, yeah, I loved Ethan it's Phillips. It's fun there. seeing him out of makeup. Yeah. yeah. He went unfettered as well because he didn't want anybody. He wanted it to be like a surprise for the fans to work out if it was really him or not. So he's never mm. been credited for the role, but he's just fun. <laughs> so, well, that's clever. Um, <laughs> Uh, we'll go to you then next, Jeff, and ask for your favorite moment or scene so, from the movie. My favorite moment, I, I think, is one that people gloss over and might think it's kind of just like a, a, a quick moment or whatever. But it's the second that Picard decides he's like, you know what? Forget all this. We're going to go fight in there. So I'm going to, I'm straight up going to disobey and violate orders yeah. I was given. <laughs> if you don't want to, that's cool. I'll note it on my log. Just let me know now. Yeah, and, and uh, Data's kind I, of I just, support vocally as well as well. the fact yeah. that Data gives the vocal support and then the entire bridge crew are shown smiling like, yep. <laughs> yep, exactly. I think it like that that's a culmination of all seven seasons of the next generation where they're like, of course, we're going to support you doing this thing. And of course, you're going to violate Starfleet's orders because it's the right thing to do. But also Picard's cool. So he's like, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to get you in any trouble here. So like if you don't want to do it cool like i don't know just yeah. it, it it checked all the boxes for me and to me it's just like that's the next generation crew being awesome together yeah yeah i, I just said my uh, i could name like a dozen scenes because I, I love so many of them but um the one that i had to go with was for obvious reasons the conference room scene uh, and I've, I've talked it up enough without wanting to get into it and gush anymore but yeah i just love that scene i think it's an incredible uh well written well acted brilliant scene so totally that will be uh, my favorite moment in the film uh and finally your favorite line from the movie uh Aaron. now's not the time to argue about time we don't have the time <laughs> <laughs> i was hoping someone would pick that 
Yeah, that is great. That is a perfect example of a drunken sci-fi. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And what about uh, yourself, Jeff? That was totally, totally going to be mine because it's, <laughs> oh, okay. it's so good. But I, I had a second just in case. And it's, mm-hmm. it's from that, the scene that you had mentioned there. It's just, you know, the line must be drawn here, no mm-hmm. further. Oh, and he just delivers it with so much, so much Patrick Stewart. So much delivery, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. I love the, that line. The, the, the almost venom of I will make them pay for what they've yeah. done. Yeah, it's just oof, chills. But yeah, uh, awesome. My favorite line, weirdly enough, it kind of comes from left field, but it's actually um, Picard's delivery of the line to Wolf. Um, as a matter of fact, I think oh, the bravest man I've ever known. Because oh, yeah. there's something in the way that. Uh, Patrick Stewart delivers it and just the very slightest of vocal cracks and I fully believe it and it's just like it's so evocative and I'm like oh that gets me every single time because again it's one of those things where if you've lived with these characters for what seven or eight years and you know the history there and then you just get one line that sums it all up so perfectly and I'm like oh wow (laughs) that hit me in the sweet spot so I'm gonna go with that one even though I will say uh, that I have noted that Troy's entire drunken tirade is a very close (laughs) second I will go briefly um, into the audience interaction section, uh, mm-hmm. just with because um, incoming I transmission. Social media post, as I always do, asking what are your thoughts on the movie Star Trek: First Contact. I have had to select a few because I will say uh, I put it onto my personal Twitter and I have like 170 odd replies. <laughs> um, so if anybody's just curious a about a, a lot of people's thoughts about First Contact, by all means, go and find that post. Um, if I can find a way to share it somewhere, I will try, but. Um, I have got a few that I wanted to read here and then I'll get into our conclusions and scores at the end. Um, but just to give you an idea of kind of the responses in general, um, at Aliyah Giselle says, I feel it's the best of the next gen movies, best Trek movie overall. I'd still go Wrath of Khan. Great use of the Borg and Picard having to deal with his feelings on them. Alice Krieger is excellent as the Borg Queen and the performance of Alfre Woodard stands out to me as well. Um, a relatively long one here from Nerd Heaven podcast. Uh, and they say, my favorite Star Trek movie, definitely the best of the TNG films, wonderful creepy tone, powerful character moments from Picard, wonderful performances from Alfre Woodard and James Cromwell, nice 30th anniversary nods to DS9 Voyager and the original series, amazing score from Jerry Goldsmith. Introducing the concept of a queen was perhaps not the best course of action for the Borg, but I totally accepted it because Alice Krieger was amazing. Going back in time to assimilate post-World War III Earth didn't make a whole lot of sense plot-wise, but again, I overlooked that because everything else in the film was so darn good. So, there you go. <laughs> Sam at Do The Next Thing says, best TNG film for sure. So many fun and iconic moments. The best Trek films are big action set pieces with thinky plots, and this is emblematic. Commodore Decker says, this film is almost sacrosanct. I've lost all objectivity over time, and I learn or glean something new each time I watch it, which I do several times a year. I was lucky to be working at a movie theater when it debuted, and I still have my posters. It's nearly perfect. So there we go. If I could just... Uh, At AKA Starlord, my occasional co-host, chimed in. Uh, This is DK to say, definitely the best of the TNG movies with fantastic direction, great set pieces, and a sublime soundtrack. A great installment, despite the introduction of a concept I was not at first overly fond of, The Queen. Uh, and yeah, First Contact overall was just okay. Although the best of the next-gen movies, it is still fairly middle of the road. It's a bit harsh, but okay. Um, <laughs> at Optimum Surf just says, a girl I dated in high school did fully, so it's a classic in my world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> at Beverage underscore Fred says, I'm not a fan of time travel. I think it gets used too much. Best Star Trek movie is Wrath of Khan. 
uh, at Subcommander Tal says it may be an unpopular opinion, but I didn't care for it. I thought the Borg lost some originality by having a central authority, didn't enjoy the characterization of Zephram Cochrane, and the scene with the Vulcans felt forced somehow. Just my personal opinion. Uh, where are we? And then finally, at Mr. Robert Brendan says it's easily the best. The atmosphere, a great setup, great performances from all, but especially Patrick Stewart, Alfrey Woodard's You Broke Your Little Ships moment, uh, and also Alice Krieger. Uh, sublime direction from at Jonathan S. Frakes, uh, and just the most beautifully haunting theme I've ever heard. Uh, and because he was tagged, that post was liked by one Mr. Jonathan Frakes, who, uh, if you happen to be listening, sir, good work in the movies. <laughs> I do like it, so, yeah. <laughs> There's some dissenting voices, but overall it seems quite positive, so... With that in mind, uh, I will jump to our official thoughts on the matter. So uh, I did ask you uh, both to for like a brief paragraph or two conclusion and a score out of five stars. Uh, do you both have those ready for me? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, do you want to go first again then, Aaron? Oh, yeah. Um, my conclusion is that this is a, uh, it's a really excellent movie, but it's a really excellent data movie, hmm. um, which I think maybe sets up the... Uh, the way the franchise approaches the movies from here yeah. on out. But <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. um, I rank it a solid four out of five stars. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Four out of five. Yeah. Fair one, enough. one of the better ones, but my favorite will always be Star Trek six. Okay. Fair. Well, that's a lot of love Star Trek. <laughs> well, everybody has their favorites too. Six is popular at first contact. So fair enough. Uh, we, what about you then, uh, Jeff, your conclusion and score out of five, please. I think this was an excellent movie. I consider this to be the first of the next generation movies. I think Generations is the mm. hybrid, right, in there. And so it's yeah. the first first of them. And to Aaron's point, I cannot disagree at all. It's a Picard and Data story um, with everyone else's set dressing on there and what wonderful dressing it is. I think, though, that this, po this movie poses up against really tough questions it tackles trauma in a way and in a time that we as a society weren't ready to tackle so like much all star trek was ahead of its time um i'm gonna also give this a four out of five in there right. i think that the next generation movies were great they were not what the tos movies were and my favorite of the tng films is actually insurrection um so okay. i know i just lost credibility with most people <laughs> listening but i think i think it was an excellent film my favorite star trek 2 wrath of khan um fair enough but yeah i give us a solid solid four out of five yeah fair enough i just said uh, absolutely sublime i've tried to be objective knowing what this film means to me personally as i've explained but um it's the film for me that just connected at the right time that i've seen dozens of times that i know every scene of by heart and can lip sync the dialogue as i watch uh, which I really can. So maybe there's some bias, but watching it again with a critical eye, I still just think it's so good. The direction is outstanding, cinematic, flashy without being overwhelming, and coupled with acting, getting some of the best performances you'll see in any film. I truly believe that. The plot is brilliant, building on an existing story without relying on it and beautifully weaving in movie moment action scenes, spot on comedy and that elusive Trek ideology of hope for the future. Uh, I wish there wasn't a bit of a stigma on sci-fi and Star Trek in general, because there are times I wish I was brave enough to say this is my favorite movie of all time. It's very definitely a contender. Uh, and I went with five stars out of five. So uh, I'm a bit of an outlier, a bit of the, the, the supporter, I guess, who's giving it a little bit more love than uh, than the other two of my guests here. So, but no, no shade. <laughs> it's all good. But uh, yeah, I think I've explained why it's a kind of an important film for me and why I absolutely love it. So hopefully I've justified that in my ramblings. Um, and so, yeah, all that's left to do is to combine those scores to get the podcast average then. 
uh, at which point the average comes out. The uh, podcast has decided that Star Trek First Contact is officially 4.33 stars out of five. So not bad at all. <laughs> I not think bad is, at uh, all. Yeah, definitely the the uh, takeaway from that. A very, very, very good film. And uh, if you're a Trek fan, I think you'll love it probably even more. But I would love to know if you are a Trek newbie, what you thought of this movie, because I've always wondered. <laughs> so there you go. Um, yeah, awesome. So it was great uh, talking about one of my favorite movies <laughs> and to be joined by two new friends. So thank you both so much for joining me to talk. Apologies for rambling a lot and keeping you for so long. <laughs> but, uh, that was a blast. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. We could let's go two more hours. I mean, I, we can talk about this film a lot more. <laughs> oh, I could if you'd let me, but yeah. <laughs> so, um, did you want to shout out kind of where people can find you and your other kind of projects and podcasts? Uh, and we'll start again with you, Aaron. Why not? <laughs> oh, yeah, um, sure. Um, so, my wife and I host a podcast called The Spinal Frontier, it's a biology podcast, and <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Spinal Frontier Pod and on Twitter at Spinal Frontier. Okay, awesome. Uh, and what about you, Jeff? Well, first, I have to tell you that you need to listen to the Spinal Frontier. I <laughs> become one of my favorite podcasts. I really enjoy how Aaron and Kelly break things down and provide insights into Star Trek that I had never even imagined before. Um, so definitely, definitely give give it a listen. Uh, I have a podcast, the Starfleet Leadership Academy, where it's a leadership podcast where I watch an episode of Star Trek and then pull out leadership, management, communication lessons uh, from it and, and share those. It's um, a huge part of my passion. I also uh, do leadership speaking and consulting um, as part of that. And you can find me anywhere you get uh, your podcast. So you can follow me on social media at Jeff. T Aiken. That's A K I N. Thank you so much for having us today. This has been fantastic. Thanks yeah, for thank being here. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, as I say, um, you can always find me at Ian Mike Wilson on Twitter or my name everywhere else, wherever Mike Wilson's are bought and sold. Uh, the podcasts <laughs> that I uh, sort of own and run, uh, there is at HOM Trek or Home Trek for the uh, Star Trek It or Miss podcast or at podcast underscore screen for the Silver Screen podcast. And through there, you can link to our YouTube channels and Spotify and what have you. Um, this obviously is the final episode in this particular series of the famous Star Trek podcast. Uh, concludes our kind of look at the Borg and AI. Um, so we will not be back for more next week, but I am hoping to get Series 3 up and running sooner rather than later and hopefully before the end of the year. Uh, and I can officially reveal that the theme for Series 3 that was chosen by Democratic Twitter poll will be time travel stories. So <laughs> there we go. Thanks again for joining me, guys. And uh, everyone, remember... We are Starfleet. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper.